Good afternoon. I'm your host, Sean Ramkunis, and welcome to Music Speaks, the podcast that is dedicated to how music impacts one person's life. I believe that many people have a playlist that makes their life unique through music. And a musical quote for today, so long as the human spirit thrives on this planet, music in some living form will accompany and sustain it and give it expressive meaning. Aaron Copeland. And I think that's a great segue into introducing my guest. My guest today is someone I was introduced to once my former teacher went on sabbatical. And I was blown away by the amount of creativity and intelligence that he always brings to the table. He always has an opinion on life and has the best insight on the career of becoming an educator and a musician. His name is Michael Blutman. Michael Blutman has a diverse career as a trumpeter and a music educator in the New York City area. He is a graduate of the University of Maryland and Juilliard. Some of his performing and recording credits include Sting, several symphony orchestras, John Batiste's jazz band, Paragon Ragtime Orchestra, and many others. He and his brother started a music education publishing company, Pinnacle Music Press. As a teacher, he has taught at Five Towns College, Ithaca College, and has a private trumpet studio on Long Island. Hey Mike, how are you? And you froze already. Nah. Love the quarantine uh, technology. <laughs> we'll run with it. I'm going to assume you said hi. Yeah, I, I did say so hi. I'm going to say hi back. Thanks for having me, Sean. No, no, it's, it's great to have you. Um, so what are you doing to stay sane during this quarantine? I've actually, I mean, for me, when the whole world shuts down, my brain opens up musically a lot. Uh, so I went into a, an etude project actually, uh, on old cornets from the 1800s and early 1900s. I dove into a whole project with that, uh, dove into some jazz playing basically the kinds of stuff that I could do by myself or through acapella app with just a couple of other friends. Um, and that was my first time using that app, which uh, has been really cool. Just a very different, that opened up a lot of possibilities for performing and teaching also. What have you been doing during this quarantine? Well, well you're still in a semester. I, I am. That's I'm crazy. I'm, I'm finishing up my semester. And um, like I told you, I'm preparing for a recital right now. I'm working on a bunch of solo repertoire. Um, I'm working on a, um, a piece by a friend of yours, Kevin McKee, actually two of them. I'm working on uh, The Adventures Of, one that I did for the uh, lecture recital I did in the fall. And then I'm working on uh, One Man Blues Band, which you commissioned. Yeah. Yeah, and what I love about those two pieces is, and I hope Kevin writes many, many more of them. In fact, on Facebook today, I just shared a picture of me, Kevin, and Brandon Almagro from nine years ago playing a church rehearsal. Um, and Brandon's now a really prominent member of the U.S. Navy Band, and Kevin has been killing it uh, compositionally and as a trumpet player. Um, so pretty cool looking back at young versions of us um, and just the kind of, it, it builds on just how close friendships become through being colleagues with people in school um, and just broader in, in music in general and with students also. The coolest thing about those two pieces um, are their performance pieces, but they could be etudes, they are modular in that you could skip from any section to any other section um, with the blues within the blues form mm. and the adventures of kind of within each part of it. So um, I've, I've done all sorts of different things with both of those pieces. Uh, if you need a 15 or 30 second opener to a, a master class or something, either of those work great and you can kind of cut and paste where you want. And the blues band, one man blues band one, I've resisted recording so far mm. because I'm more interested in doing a project with all my students where I want them to explore the piece kind of through Kevin's uh, 
interpretation of a blues language, very blue scale oriented in, in that in that piece, um, while improvising their own parts to it. So I want them to weave themselves in and out of Kevin's piece, which means I don't want to record anything because it'll become the definitive version for my students instead of uh, opening up their creativity. Or maybe I'm just too lazy to do it. That would be that may be the other part. But um, no, I think that when, especially it has my name on top, written for you know, or commissioned by me, that if you put out a recording, then all of a sudden that becomes the definitive version, mm-hmm. which I, I wouldn't. I, I don't think there could be a definitive version of of that particular piece because of how modular and uh, open Kevin Kevin leaves that. Um, so I, I really hope he expands this to almost like an etude book of 10 or 15 of these types of pieces that you can mix together and little vignettes or sweets or something. So I've been probably annoying him too much about that. I'm sure he has plenty of other projects on the horizon. So I started trumpet playing because I've always enjoyed listening to some of Kevin's inspirations like John Williams and other film composers like Ennio Morricone. Um, what? Why did you start playing trumpet? Partially a, a, a similar influence, I think, on anyone born 1960-something to now, John Williams has had a huge influence on your cultural life, uh, whether you know it or not. Uh, just the, the sheer amount of great movie music he's written in some of the iconic films since the late 70s or or whenever uh, a little before then. Um, so if you were a kid in the late 70s uh, watching Star Wars for the first time and, and Jaws and all of these great movies, E.T. a couple of years later, um, I, how do you not get hooked? I mean, the, the music and the movie are inseparable. Um, if, and then to each generation he speaks to, to whatever the greatest movies of that generation were in terms of the blockbusters, whether it's Jurassic Park when I was a kid, uh, certainly the Indiana Jones series when I, I was a little too young for their premieres, but those were huge when I was growing up. E.T. and uh, Jurassic Park was a new movie. Um, as I got a little bit older and was watching more of the President's movies, uh, he wrote JFK, Nixon, and Lincoln across a wide period of time. So, yeah. uh, and and in each of them, there are these gorgeous trumpet solos. Um, so, uh, similarly, I think a exposure to John Williams's movie music was hugely influential to me wanting to play some kind of instrument that could be contributing to that. Uh, to folks a little bit younger than me, the Harry Potter series. Um, uh, his music in there is uh, also just absolutely iconic. And I've used John Williams, and I call it John Williams and His Heroes, um, which allows me to touch on tons of classical composers whom he, he drew kind of clear inspiration from. Uh, so if you love the big, iconic, sweeping themes, you probably also like Wagner and Holst and Respighi and Strauss, and mm. you, you may not know that you like it as much. If you really dig the Harry Potter score, you're also a fan of Debussy and Scriabin without knowing it. Damn. And Ravel and all sorts of, it's one of the most colorful, beautiful scores, um, I think, written, and whoever does his orchestrations as well. I know that he gives a lot of input, but doesn't uh, always complete everything, every aspect of it himself. So he works with just such an incredible team over his whole career to bring those sounds to us. Um, and actually, uh, and I'm going to go completely out of order. You had asked me for five pieces that um, I'm going to steal number one for myself right now. Sure. Uh, the, the number one top, greatest, best, uh, whatever you want to call it, is Blues and Hosses Flat mm. by Frank Foster of Count Basie's band. Um, and it's the first track on Count Basie's iconic Chairman of the Board album. And I could trace why I play trumpet to that specific album and that specific track 
And in fact, even just a tiny part of that track, um, the Jerry Lewis movie from 1960 or 61 called The Errand Boy, goofy, off-the-wall physical comedy, features half of this chart, um, Blues and Haas Flat by Frank Foster. And it's uh, Jerry Lewis as this schleppy errand boy, always getting bossed around and yelled at by his bosses. He goes into his boss's office, bosses and there, he sits down at the boss's desk and does about a two-minute pantomime with a cigar um, where he's yelling at the, the fake staff members like his boss does as a pantomime to Count Basie's orchestra doing blues in Haas flat. And my dad, uh, born in 52, I guess, uh, was a young boy when the Jerry Lewis movies were coming out, and that had such a huge influence on him that he had to know what that music was ended up getting the recording and became obsessed with Count Basie from that era, the late 50s, early 60s, which um, I, I used to sit in the basement with my dad and listen to those all the time. Mm. And what I didn't realize at the time was as great as Blues and Haas Flat is, the entire album I, to me is just, if I had to pick one big band album that is, here's what a big band is or should be mm. it's Basie's band swinging in the late 50s early 60s the, the uh, roulette label years um, and specifically that album which also has uh, as we let it run we wore out track one pretty good on a couple of records and it didn't get put out digitally until 2003 yet so actually when I was already in college so we would just always find and use record stores copies of it and we had it on tapes uh, we made cassette tapes out of it, but it wasn't available on CD um, and or other later digital platforms like it is now. Um, so we wore out track one because my dad loved it so much. So at some point we had to skip over track one and we actually listened to the rest of it, which included five early Thad Jones arrangements. Thad was a member of Basie's band mm. and aside from being some of my favorite big band music to play and listen to, um, introduced me to Thad Jones as an improviser. Um, and it, it, the fifth track on that album, Speaking of Sounds, is the first real Thad chart where he's using the woodwind textures and there's a cool trumpet and bass duet. Um, and it goes into this like wickedly hard awesome solo that Thad plays and it's all packed into like two and a half three minutes it's, it's an unbelievable track so that was the next one I wore out on there not knowing that this was Thad Jones this was just me in elementary school listening to stuff that sounded good to me right yeah. um, and because my dad was so excited by that music it kind of gave it validation and it's not that he's a musician um, He's a, he's a trial lawyer. He, but his terrific taste in music, specifically jazz, mm. had a huge influence on what I was listening. I was listening to Capital Years Frank Sinatra and Roulette Years Count Basie in the house. He, my dad has unbelievably um, focused tastes in, in music, which I've since learned is based on having a phenomenal ear for really great swinging thickly scored, beautiful arrangements. And while he never developed the musical vocabulary or musical know-how to say exactly why these were albums are better than those albums or mm -hmm. this is better than that, it's he knows what he's listening to and, uh, and has such a, a fantastic record collection. Uh, uh, not a huge record collection, just every single one in there is fantastic. It's Oscar Peterson and Stan Getz. It's uh, um, not so much the crazy beboppers where he has a slightly inappropriate term for what that sounds like that I won't share with your audience <laughs> at this time. Um, but the whole play 10,000 notes a second never really grabbed his ear. Hmm. But like Stan Getz, where an improvised solo sounds like it could be a melody grabbed his ear. So hmm. I could trace, I knew I wanted to play whenever they offered instruments uh, to choose from. I knew I wanted to play one of the instruments that I could play Count Basie kind of stuff on. 
Hmm. So it was going to be a horn. I, think, I I put saxophone down as my first choice hmm. um, and got trumpet for whatever reasons. And it, it's like, it's fine. I don't think... I don't think the trumpet spoke to me that I had to play trumpet, you know. Mm. I just knew that, like, I wanted to play... Uh, I Instrumental music grabbed my ear more so than stuff with words, I think, and, and I'm not quite sure where the brain mapping for that is in my crazy straw of a brain. Right, yeah. But it's... Um, I, I knew that something I could play tunes on would be good. Um, I played a little bit of piano first to third grade. Uh, my parents' home came with a piano. Uh, they didn't want to bring it upstairs, the people my parents bought the house from. So uh, the basement just had this piano in it, and it wasn't that it was like spectacularly taken care of, but I took these great lessons with, a, uh, in retrospect, a terrific, terrific teacher, Miss McCoy. Really cool cane shoot she came down with also. Hmm. Had like a snake's head and with these teeth that you would, I'd always poke my finger on it to see how sharp they were. I was just as dumb then. But I knew I wanted to play a, a horn. Uh, hmm. that, that, seemed to, that seemed to be attractive to me and um, saxophone and trumpet just seemed like they, hmm. they fit well. Hmm. So, but yeah, I could trace it to that specific track. Hmm. Um, and if you look up Jerry Lewis Family Guy on YouTube. Somebody put apparently the same exact scene from The Errand Boy that influenced my dad so much also influenced Seth MacFarlane, mm. uh, the creator of Family Guy, because he does that entire scene, the pantomime, as a cartoon for Peter Griffin. Um, the character. So somebody put a side by side where you see Jerry Lewis on one side and Peter Griffin on the other side doing side-by-side -side pantomimes to Blues in Haas Flat by Frank Foster, played by the Count Basie Orchestra on Chairman of the Board album. Hmm. Um, and there's always been that link between comedy and music, and uh, like I'll do just about anything or say, well, not anything. <laughs> I'd say a lot of stuff for a laugh. Um, that I, There's always been that connection to me between um, music and comedy that it's all about time mm. all about timing the mm. content is important but the time is really important mm. is is as important finding where it grooves finding where where the joke plants figuring out pauses you know it's like the craft of comedy and it's not that I'm a comedian it's that I I just really appreciate great comedians mm. um, and it's not surprising that George Carlin took piano lessons at Juilliard when he was a kid. Mm. Um, loved Rachmaninoff because the guy wrote his own material for his unique skill set of those big, humongous hands he had. And he was the expert performer, and that was a huge influence on George Carlin. His book, um, uh, uh, Last Words, Posthumous, not an autobiography, not a biography. He called a sort of biography, his own genre of biography. Um, an autobiography, but written by someone else in his words, putting interviews to it. Weird, cool book. Um, people like Louis C.K. and Dave Chappelle, also very musical in their deliveries. Uh, um, Mel Brooks was a jazz drummer up in the Catskill Mountains, where I'm spending my quarantine right now. Um, Sid Caesar, one of the great, our show of shows was... Hmm. The first place with Carl Reiner and Mel Brooks and Woody Allen at different times were writers on there, these great comedy writers. Sid Caesar was a tenor sax player. Mel Brooks was a drummer. Woody Allen's a clarinet player. Um, there's always been that connection between um, music and comedy, and it's not by accident that I'm, I think, attracted to both a lot. Hmm. When I started playing Pictures in an Exhibition... I think that was when I realized that I wanted to be a trumpet player at an orchestra or do freelance work. Was there something that that compelled you to start thinking about becoming a musician? I think it's more about the hang. Mm. Like the okay. material is great, but I was yeah. going to be around good musical material uh, as a listener or player regardless um, and certainly had great models around me my dad certainly being one mom always has music on um, 
she's more rooted in like folk, uh, the folk sounds of the 60s, which is cool, mm. uh, acoustic kind of stuff. Um, so I knew there were great models for being around music. I liked the kinds of people who liked music young. So like middle school really started that. And then I just continued, the more musicians I met, regardless of whether they went into music or not, I just liked the quality of people that I was generally around when I was playing music and when I was in rehearsals, goofing around in the back row. That's uh, Thank God they gave me trumpet where I'm in the back row all the time. Total goofball, uh, including on gigs presently. Don't tell contractors. Um, um, so it's like, I, I think I like the hang. Mm. And the deeper I went with the material, uh, and my first orchestral performance was doing the second through fifth movements of Mahler's Second Symphony, mm. which is partially why that's on my list also that I gave you. Right. Um, it's those early influences of being around. But what made that so important was that Dan Basson was playing first trumpet. He's now a conductor, composer, and still a phenomenal musician, uh, trumpeter, um, also plays piano beautifully. Mm. Um, like he thinks compositionally through the piano very interestingly. He's young, I'm talking like 10th grade, 11th grade, 12th grade, and uh, that's when I met him. He was in about 10th grade, uh, same grade year as my older brother. Uh, so I was in like 8th or ninth grade, and he was in 10th or 11th grade. And he was the first trumpet in the youth orchestra, and he he studied scores. He knew every detail of everything and, mm. and was so gracious in um, having me. I didn't even make the youth orchestra. So I would just sit there but between he and Josh Kopeis, the first trombone player, mm. and he would give me the scores, and I tried follow along. It was very confusing with way too many lines on a page, um, way too much stuff to follow, and trying to figure out transposition, all, all crazy stuff, right? Mm. But I got to sit next to these really passionate musicians, and both uh, Dan and Josh were in Juilliard pre-college at the time uh, also. So these were, you know, for young players, they were very serious about their craft, they were really into what they were doing, um, and we've remained friends and colleagues since. So I, I think that having the early influences of people like that who were serious musicians, who took their craft really seriously, and who inter helped introduce me to such incredible repertoire. Mm. Uh, Martin Drywitz, the conductor of Long Island Youth Orchestra, um, he programmed too many concerts every year <laughs> with way too heavy reps. And it's not that it always sounded great, it didn't, but that I was exposed to so much great repertoire, orchestral repertoire, hmm. and then balanced with my, uh, that was a Sunday morning commitment, my Saturday morning commitment was Nassau Suffolk Jazz Ensemble with Bill Katz, who just turned 90 this year, um, hmm. who, that was where I got to play my first Thad Jones tunes and uh, first Count Basie tunes. So it was symphony orchestra and big, big band jazz were always kind of the big groups of musicians. and. That's the hardest part of the quarantine now. No big groups mm. of anything, <laughs> but, but no big groups. That's what makes so, some of our music making really, really, really special yeah. is that it's a whole bunch of people getting together with the contributions of everyone pulling together toward these singular goals. And that's a really special thing that uh, I hope we get back to sometime soon. Mm. Um, there's something neat about I like solo and quintet playing, and I haven't done a ton of small group jazz playing. The big groups are more interesting to my ears, and that's partially how I'm, uh, something I'm really excited about as I shift toward being a school band director now, hmm. is encouraging those connections and putting out just a good vibe where we're all aiming towards something together. Music kids are always good kids. You know, yeah. it's like uh, there anyone who wants to be a part of something like that, uh, we, we all have something in common. And I think that a teacher's ability to foster that and and collect kids together toward musical goals, mouth shut, ears open, making whatever contributions you've you've got inside you toward this collective goal is a really nice thing that's 
very different than other types of teams we may play on also. Um, so I look forward to aiming toward that, uh, and that makes the quarantine a bit a bit challenging. Hmm. Uh, but that's also why I coach at Nassau Suffolk now. I've been coaching at Nassau Suffolk 11, 12 years, and I was a member of them for, uh, for three years, uh, 10th, 11th, and 12th grade. Uh, it's this all Long Island concert band and jazz band system. And it's like greatest kids in the world every year. Whoever shows up is great. It's mm. like everyone's there for the right reasons. And I was so lucky to have all of these great teachers along the way, including many who are now colleagues at Nassau Suffolk and, and broader. Mm. So I, I think it's all one thing. It's all about the hang. It's all about putting out a good vibe. It's all about playing great material across mm. a wide range of genres. And I think that somebody who's really passionate about some type of music can get other people excited about that type of music. But that person also has to be open to what are the students really passionate about? Mm. What makes that a hook, even if it's not my music right now, even if it's not the music that speaks to me, and trying to figure out how do you get people to hang around what they're passionate about? Um, and that's something that I'm that will develop over hopefully a long career. So we're about to almost move into our next segment. Do you want to introduce what your musical tastes are like? What sort of draws you to certain kinds of music? Anything that grooves hard in any, in any genre. Mm. Um, there's, there's such a wide range of material within any genre. So, I mean, at the risk of being really pretentious, I guess. I like good music. <laughs> Whatever that means to me. It's, and the things that draw me are a really good groove, and it could be um, a, a, a raga. It, it, could, it could go out from... It could be popular music. I think right. I, I have some hideously trashy tastes at times <laughs> that, like... If I admitted some of what I like listening to, it would be like, why? What? It's, it's, and it's like good pop music is good. Mm. Anything that grooves is great. That's what I loved working with John Baptiste for those couple of years. Right, that, yeah. That I was in, uh, he made a little big band and it was, oh, like he called them love riots where you just showed up in places and played. And we were playing like late, I, I was introduced to some of Lady Gaga's music through John Baptiste. And we would play on moving subway cars. He made a, a recording, he had a mobile recording, so he had no permits for anything. <laughs> and we would be recording on moving subway cars, and his goal was to get in a whole subway car to sing. Mm. And I just remember like, I played Mahler symphonies at Carnegie Hall and uh, all this, all the stuff, Broadway shows, and some of my strongest musical experiences were like people singing on subway cars with Baptiste, who just brings this electric energy, yeah. and who has no distinctions in, or boundaries to his musical tastes. And uh, so my, my answer is good, good music. I, I like good music. And I and what I didn't used to think was good, sometimes I think is good now. And I'd imagine some things that I really like now, I may question my taste uh, at some point in the future. Um, but it's some some music is timely, but not timeless. Same with comedy. Same with movies. Mm. Uh, same with same with anything cultural, where it speaks to a certain time really well. But then you zoom ahead 20 years and it just doesn't speak to that time. Yeah. Um, or it may speak to you in isolation in a quarantine, but not when your life gets busier and you're doing a lot of stuff. So there may be, um, there, I think my taste changes quite a bit, but the through line has always been that it grooves hard, mm. um, grooves really well. And that doesn't mean it's loud or anything. It means... That, it, it could just fall in the cracks of things. There's some beautiful, um, really intimate music and very soft, spatial kind of music really attracts me also. It all depends on mood and uh, mood you know, by the day, but also by the month or the year, maybe. Uh, those long drives 
that sabbatical semester when I was working with you, mm. I, I was driving back and forth from New York City to Ithaca mm. every week. So I had way more alone time in the car. And suddenly I could get zoomed in on certain things. I either let a lot of music wash over me to just kind of pass the time and whole albums would go by or uh, something on my uh, satellite radio that you know, some some station that would just play a lot of stuff within a genre and you just kind of do that. But other times, like, I remember one trip, four and a half hours straight of one Freddie Hubbard solo. Mm. It was the, the his solo on uh, I Was Doing All Right from the Dexter Gordon album, Doing All Right. Great album. Mm. And there's this Freddie Hubbard solo that like summarizes 1930 to 19, I think it was recorded in 60, 61, 62, somewhere in there. And it basically is a history of 30 years of jazz in one trumpet solo hmm. that is mind-bogglingly great. Hmm. Um, and so I listened to every little part of that over and over and over again, and I could sing it. And all of a sudden, my fingers start doing the fingerings a little bit. And I start getting my head wrapped around the intervals and the sounds of it and and the chord changes and can I sing the bass? Can I sing the, the uh, trumpet solo? Can I get every little part, every little nuance to it in my singing? Um, and, and, you know, like kind of inner singing, humming, and, and actually singing in the car. And, and that was so hyper-obsessive for a whole four-and-a-half-hour drive. I, I just showed up, and I continued uh, doing that in my car once I got to Ithaca because I was almost on some other side, whatever cycle I was on with it, I was like not done with that. And I just sat in the car for another hour and hung with that solo. So I, I, my tastes vary tremendously, Hmm. Um, but it's all around stuff that grooves well and, and says something. Hmm. It's got to say something. Right. Couldn't say something stupid, but it's got (laughs) to say something. So we're going to take a break. Uh, If you don't mind sticking around, uh, we'll be right back. Sounds good. And welcome back. Uh, So Mike sent us uh, his uh, five-song playlist. And like he mentioned in the first segment, uh, Blues and Haas Flat by Count Basie and Chairman of the Board. Do you want to introduce the song a little bit? Yeah, track one on the greatest big band album ever. Basie, Mm. chairman of the board. Uh, The album is from 1959, and uh, the tune is written by Frank Foster, one of his uh, great tenor players uh, in the band, longtime member of Basie's band. Hmm. Okay, here's a little bit of... DJ. Here's Blues and Haas Flat. such a unique language of music um so let me ask you this what makes Basie such a great artist I think he put together great musicians in the room and utilized their talents to immense levels um he he was able to collect people together so many of his great uh tunes came from members of the band um, Frank West, Frank Foster, Ernie Wilkins, Thad Jones. Um, and then he also brought in great arrangers from outside, like Neil Hefty, mm. um, Billy Byers, those kind of guys. Thick sound. They, these guys knew how to use the big band. So it's not even that. Uh, Count Basie was cool. He used to put two notes in the crack on piano and was certainly a, a terrific musician. Um, but he what what I love most about Count Basie was he wasn't the star of his band. He the band was the star of the band. Like the band was the was the thing. Freddie Green sitting there strumming his guitar for fifty years. I, it's a uh, Sonny Payne on drums on this album. Just 
absolutely incredible. So let me ask you this. How did you get into jazz in the first place? Uh, way back to my dad. Uh, he mm. had a great record collection. He used to make mixtapes. That was a thing. That was a solidly uh, <laughs> 80s kind of thing to be doing. Right, yeah. Um, mixtapes of favorite Stan Getz, favorite Oscar Peterson, favorite Count Basie, favorite ba- uh, favorite uh, Sinatra. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, just having great music around the house and hearing great jazz, that as soon as you put a horn in my hand, like, by the time I could play a couple of notes, I was trying to figure out how to play some jazz on it. Um, I, I, it's a mystery to me why I didn't grab jazz improvisation as, like, the way that I went. But I think it was because, I, partially it was, I was so attracted to the precision of Basie's band that it was precise and, and swinging. Mm. It was, like, precise and loose, which I think describes a lot of what I'm calling groove, that there's a pocket for the music that's somewhere between, it's precise but not antiseptic. It's not, like, neat and clean and no, no heart to it. Right. There's, like a looseness and precision that's um, a little hard to describe, but but absolutely describes, I think, everything in um, certainly these five that, uh, that I picked. The next tune that you gave us was uh, Symphony Number no. 2, Resurrection, by Gustav Mahler. Uh, the recording that I used is the Viner uh, Philharmonic, uh, conducted by Gilbert Kaplan. How did you first hear about Mahler? Uh, as I mentioned earlier about youth orchestra, mm. I was really introduced through youth orchestra. I, um, and then immediately became obsessed. Um, and Mahler is very easy to become obsessed with, in part because the language is drawn from so much folk music from his part of Moravia, uh, which you know they've drawn the lines a million different ways in Europe. Uh, these days, but it's somewhere in like where klezmer music came from, from that part of Europe. Um, so he has all of these Jewish sounds, which was was always all, off, also a part of my upbringing. Um, both of my grandfathers loved listening to Jewish cantors, um, so I had these sounds in my ear that somehow Mahler spoke to very well. And then you're talking about just these massive scale pieces with an entire world of sound from the most intimate tiny sounds to the largest sounds and this particular recording the Gil Kaplan uh, uh, Gil Kaplan doesn't do a lot of uh, I, I don't believe he's a broadly trained musician um, in the traditional sense he became obsessed with Mahler second symphony mm. and he like records this it's a it's a a hyper focus and obsession by him and I, I don't know uh, all of the details but that's that's roughly what I understand and I could certainly identify with that uh, I didn't know you were going to play this recording but that's really cool because uh, I think that there's something about Mahler that is just intensely gripping uh, and same for Alec Baldwin uh, the actor um, who is now a spokesperson for the New York Philharmonic, uh, mm. in part because of his love of Mahler. Um, Mahler was the music director of the New York Philharmonic uh, at the end of his life. And um, I've heard these stories, and I don't know how true they are, of Alec Baldwin insisting that film shoots be on a certain schedule such that he makes it to Carnegie Hall for, a, or the or uh, now Geffen Hall for, for the Philharmonic, but there's certain orchestra coming through um, Carnegie Hall, and he has to be at that performance of this Mahler symphony. Mm. Um, and so I think there's something about Mahler that um, encourages healthy or not so healthy obsession, and certainly caught me. Uh, the Schulte Chicago recordings first, uh, Bernstein recordings, uh, Bruno Walter recordings, who, who worked ar- alongside Mahler. Uh, mm. So I dug into a lot of earlier recordings, uh, John Barbaroli and uh, Klemperer, certainly. Um, Mangelberg, be- absolutely beautiful recordings. Uh, and, and, and of course, much more. Now, it seems like every orchestra plays Mahler really beautifully. Mm. 
Um, and and it's incredible just how widespread his music has become that you really look for. I mean, I remember coaching you on Mahler's first symphony. That's right. Um, as, as a student and just how that music draws you in um, and is bombastic in one moment and the most intimate music you can imagine in the next. So here's a little bit of uh, the fifth movement of Mahler's second symphony. anywhere right <laughs> where do you shut off a Mahler symphony and that's that's from the very end of the piece it took an hour and a few minutes to even get there yeah um, I know it's it's uh, I mean a humongous piece and 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 you know that the, he saves the choir for the end the, there's the first three movements have uh, just the orchestra playing the fourth movement brings one solo voice singing one of the most hauntingly beautiful songs called Prime, uh, Primordial Light or Primeval Light, mm. Primal Light. Um, there's not a great translation for Ehrlich, I don't think. Um, or at least I've seen several. And it's this hauntingly beautiful tune with one singer. Then all of a sudden there are several singers as soloists in the last movement, the fifth movement, joined by a humongous chorus for the big for the end of the finale. So they're sitting there patiently through this hour plus of music mm. before they're cutting loose right where you turned it on. Yeah. Um, and you get this bombastic first movement with ups and downs. Totem fear is sometimes, per- that's the first movement, mm. um, is sometimes performed just as its own piece entirely. It's 20 minute something piece. Um, and then you get the second movement that starts with this little String section, and it's so simple and easy, and yeah, and then he puts these beautiful cello lines going against it, these obligato parts weaving in and out of it. Um, it's it's just incredibly inventive, beautiful writing, mm. and from a uh, musical standpoint. It's, it's, he calls it a symphony in C minor, but yet it ends in E flat major. This, it's the parallel major to the, um, to the key that he names the whole symphony for, which just from a music theory perspective is fairly um, groundbreaking, I, would, I think. I mean, there may be other examples prior to this symphony of, of resolving a whole symphony, thinking of an entire symphony, hour plus long symphony as one long chord progression Mm. is pretty cool through all of these ups and downs and different styles and different sounds, orchestrationally brilliant. Um, So it's uh, just one of those pieces that you can't can't ever uh, get out of you once it's in you. Mm. The next piece we're going to check out is Quiet City by Aaron Copeland. Uh, The recording is Aaron Copeland conducting the London Symphony Orchestra. So I've been to a concert where we both have watched Chris Martin play this piece together. Um, And I distinctly remember you bending over your chair and closing your eyes and listening to this piece so intensely. What makes this piece so special? 
it grabbed me immediately. Um, the the first recording I heard was uh, the New York Philharmonic with Leonard Bernstein conducting from the 1980s. Uh, Thomas Stacy on English horn, Phil Smith, uh, one of my hero trumpeters, uh, was first trumpet in the New York Philharmonic at the time, mm. uh, playing the trumpet part. And there's a a stillness and an urgency about this piece that is um, really gripping. And in this, he, uh, Aaron Copland writes in such a fragile way that. Uh, when I've performed it, uh, it's it's always so hard to get those strings right in tune because they're all tuned in these incredibly fragile octaves and fifths. These intervals that if it's it's either perfect or it's out, that's mm. it. It's like it's never kind of okay. Right, it's either yeah. really great or terrible, <laughs> and it's this fragility to it. And the more I dug into it, the more it related to the Irwin Shaw play from which this. Uh, material was derived um, uh, incidentally the, the music the incidental music from the play Quiet City 1930 I want to say 7 it was uh, part of the WPA um, stuff under under uh, in the depression uh, Works Progress Administration um, uh, funded the group theater which had the best directors the best actors the best composer Aaron Copeland it had all these people together and they hired the best playwright and they were all going to collaborate and do this really special thing. It failed miserably after two preview performances. Everyone was ready to strangle each other. It was a terrible failure. Mm. Um, but out of that, uh, well, first off, the original music was written only for clarinet, saxophone, trumpet, and piano. A very different ensemble than the string section, English horn, and trumpet that this music uh, he took some of the incidental music he wrote for Quiet City and turned it into the piece we call Quiet City now um, and expanded the material. It was originally written for trumpet and strings, hmm. um, 1939, and then he added the English horn part the next year in 1940, I believe, um, which became the version of the piece that, that is the way it's performed. Um, somebody, uh, Chris Brellox, came along a few years ago, a doctoral student at Rutgers, I believe, at the time, and he pieced together the Quiet City suite of the original incidental music, which gives us more great music to play from this, uh, from this play yeah. uh, beyond the, the piece that initially gripped me. And uh, that, that recording, uh, that recording, the concert that we went to, rather, where right. uh, uh, Chris Martin played so beautifully, we went to the dress rehearsal that's right. For a concert, um, and to hear just how much he and I'm, I'm blank on. Um, she's such a beautiful player, but I'm blank on her name right now. She was doing a one-year uh, uh, New York Philharmonic contract at the time, and just played absolutely gorgeously on the, the English horn part. But I'm, I'm just blanking on her name this this second. Um, I I tend to get very easily visually distracted. So when I want to go into my private space, even in a big concert hall, I tend to lean over in my chair and stare at the ground. Mm. And I'll pick one little board on the ground or stare at one little part of my shoelaces or something. And that opens my ears up to a way better experience. I do it with my eyes um, sometimes open, sometimes closed. Uh, Sometimes I fall asleep if I close my eyes, so I try to keep them open <laughs> anyway. Um, but yeah, the, and it just lets the music come in and speak to me a little more mm. uh, intensely, which is which is what I want. When that's why I'm in a big concert hall with thousands of other people, uh, with you know, fifteen hundred people or two thousand people or whatever, mm. and the musicians are all on stage and the soloists and the conductor and ever. Everyone contributing to this great thing, uh, like like we talked about earlier, about just a lot of people doing something together. Um, and in a concert, I, I love doing that from a playing standpoint. But I also love that the the audience has a job and they're a part of the of the performance. Um, that an intensely listening audience who is inviting in whatever the performers are offering to whatever extent they're capable, 
Um, and that'll vary depending on the experiences and the uh, musical knowledge of the audience members. But if everybody is inviting the sound into themselves, in that we know this is the only time in the world that we're going to get to experience this performance this way, even a concert that night is a different performance than the one that we heard in the dress rehearsal. Right. And I, I want, as long as I'm there, as long as I've paid a ticket, I want to invite as much of that music into me as I possibly can. So the next piece that you gave us was the Down Easter Alexa by Billy Joel. Um, so why change to something different than orchestral music? It's good. It's mm. really good. Um, <laughs> and I, I, I picked just this one tune, but uh, there's something about Billy Joel's music that's, that's spoken to me uh, Partially just I was exposed to it young also, Long Island Boy Done Good, um, <laughs> Billy Joel, uh, and so many of his tunes, especially Down Easter Alexa, speaks to a part of Long Island and an experience of Long Islanders, uh, especially out east, the fishermen, um, mm. who, who uh, the words are so beautiful, and this is something that I'm, I, I was initially drawn in by, just it's such a great groove. And I only realized later since he uh, came out and finally announced it that it's Yitzhak Perlman playing the violin solo in it. Mm. Which is, like, that's cool. <laughs> I didn't know that until very recently. Um, right, yeah. uh, had Yitzhak Perlman on stage with him at uh, some performances at his Madison Square Garden uh, uh, residency now, too. Mm. Uh, way cool. Uh, so it's Yitzhak Perlman improvising this this violin solo in the middle and it's just got such a a push and a drag to it that the the drums are in this like it just has a weight to it mm. while this other stuff floats on top and is kind of pushing against the groove pulling it back and it creates this groove that that is just a really special cool sound and that's similar with uh, oh, Miami 2017's another tune by Billy Joel that, that does a double-time, half-time kind of thing. Mm. That's neat. I, I just think that it's more inventive pop music that just grabbed my ear. Um, and Billy Joel's music was probably the first that I really paid attention to the lyrics. Um, mm. I, I'm, that's not where my head goes. I know that a lot of people sometimes they the lyrics grab them first. I, I tend not to be that way. Um, the music, the groove. If if I can't understand it without the lyrics, I, then it's it's not worth it to me as much. Which is why uh, some of the the folk music doesn't necessarily speak to me in the same way. Is uh, uh, too repetitive with the music and. If I want really good poetry, I just seek really good poetry. I, I mm. kind of see a little separation of church and state there. Um, but I know that's not the experience for probably most people. Mm. But this was a tune that especially drew my ears and my attention to our local geography where I grew up on Long Island. And a part of Long Island, I was really more of a city-oriented part of Long Island where a lot of the folks, including my, my dad, worked in Manhattan um, it was a really like you lived out in the suburbs, but you went to the city and you were close enough to do that. Yeah. Part of Long Island that Billy Joel's singing about in this tune is way out on the island. And they're the fishermen. They're the ones earning their living day in, day out with whatever the making these runs to Nantucket and up to Cape Cod and all through the Long Island Sound and around to Massachusetts and stuff. And that, that whole part of like almost New England, Long Island that was really not in my experience. I, I never went out east on the island. Uh, it's like Huntington was far to me, and that was not very far. Um, so that, that was about as far east as I made it on Long Island for a lot of my childhood. Um, I'm sure very occasionally we went out further east, but I, I didn't, those aren't, that's not my Long Island really, even though that's uh, who Billy Joel was speaking to in this. And it, it had, some some local interest to me and just the the hardships 
that of a vanishing industry and we're so captured by this push-pull of the groove. Mm. Mm. And here is the Downeaster Alexa by Billy Joel. concerts before incidentally i have not wow, okay. um, uh i i he played a lot at the nassau coliseum which is right right near where i grew up growing up and certainly the uh the msg concerts uh i, I was hoping to make it to one uh several times but work gets in the way now right um, yeah and there's something that i like i i haven't gone to many pop concerts in part I don't know. I don't know. It's something about that doesn't drum me in as much as a jazz club or a concert hall does, mm. where you're hearing the music come directly out of the instruments as opposed to through big PAs. And um, yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, okay. Amplified music is less interesting to me to hear live. Okay. Um, I think. Okay. So that I, I've tended not to go to a ton of. Um, I've been to some like Dave Matthews concerts where you're just like wasted on the grass with a bunch of people mm. and that's cool that's a good vibe but like in terms of I'm going to show up at Madison Square Garden with thousands I, I hate that other people are singing in my ear in a pop concert when I, oh, I just want to hear Billy Joel singing I don't want to <laughs> hear like Susie and screaming in my ear singing um, and I kind of like that for those people that's such a great collective experience for them mm. it's just not one that's appealing to me right, um, yeah. so it's not to it's not to downplay it at all I, I just something's not that appealing about that okay and a lot is not appealing <laughs> <laughs> and the last song you put in your playlist is Living for the City by Stevie Wonder uh, how did you first hear about Stevie Wonder oh uh, he was everywhere I mean, okay. that, that he's just this American icon. Uh, whether you're going on the old cuss of... Uh, uh, I mean, he just has so many hits. But incidentally, this tune was introduced to me through the Maynard Ferguson album, Chameleon, mm. uh, which is a, you know, a hugely influential album on me just for... It grooves hard and, and like people don't do on the trumpet what Maynard Ferguson did. Um, and there's a great arrangement, which once I dug really hard into the, the original Stevie Wonder tune and various live versions of it by Stevie Wonder, I, I've actually liked the Maynard version much less. Mm. It lacks some of the grittiness uh, that I love in, in Stevie Wonder tune. Um, and for, uh, I think, a lot of the same reasons that I just talked about with Billy Joel, there's a... 
an introduction to a part of society that um that I was less aware of or that was less directly in my face as I was growing up. So like for Billy Joel, it's speaking to a certain type of worker out on the island who who's gritty and grinding out a living um, in a very different way than, than uh, some of the people in the suburban neighborhood. I, there weren't any gritty fishermen types in my, in my neighborhood. Um, and similarly, while, while we were a fairly diverse community geographically, yeah. each town on Long Island was so segregated um, based on religious and racial lines mm. that I uh, was becoming more and more aware come you know middle school mm. of who your neighbors are and how not everyone has the same types of jobs and opportunities. And this tune originally, again, coming in through my ears through Maynard Ferguson's uh, band's arrangement of it. I forget who did the the exact arrangement of that one. Um, kind of got me hooked on Stevie Wonder, and then I realized, oh man, that's the same guy who did this tune and that tune. All these other tunes I was familiar with, I just didn't know this one at the time. Come you know seventh seventh grade, eighth grade, uh, there was also a big push at exactly the same time, uh, mid Clinton administration, of this education push where like everyone's writing sucks in the country, so make everyone write a lot. Not write better, just do a lot of crappy writing, apparently. Mm. Just like many other failed education initiatives since then, the answer is have them do a lot of it, not teach them to do it better. That's a different thing. Mm. So my writing, we had to write like math papers. You had to write for math class. You had to write for phys ed. You had to write for music. You had to do writing a lot. Um, and so for math, I was writing about the segregated neighboring towns of where I grew up, um, how weird, and so I did statistics, and, you know, I, I was writing on certain math topics. Mm. Um, another math paper was the Fibonacci series, which was really interesting, and linked me to Beethoven, actually, which was way cool, different discussion. But this other one about st uh, local statistics, mm. um, was speaking to just how gritty and hard uh, red line districts back from Roosevelt in the 30s and 40s and the white flight from the cities uh, uh, and the no Jews, no Catholics allowed kind of towns mm. uh, right next door to where I grew up um, and gave me a very different look at Long Island as a place um, mm. that you know, in a if one town says no Jews, no Catholics, all the Jews and Catholics go to a different town. And mm. so you look at where the churches and the synagogues are, and they're, they tend to be somewhat near each other. Um, Massapequa used to be called Matza Pizza. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it, since a lot of towns have become um, very differently mixed in, in the generation since the 50s, Certainly, but um, and very differently mixed now that mm. you see um, in a lot of these towns that were essentially founded and developed by by Jews who weren't allowed to to be sold homes uh, officially and unofficially in many other towns. They just kind of started their own towns, and it was all based on education and working hard and pulling yourself up uh, and everything, uh, regardless of whether their family had money or not. Um, and now other immigrant groups who have similar values um, flood into those neighborhoods because the great school systems uh, built up in those towns. So now you get these really beautiful, interesting, very cool mixes of populations um, in these towns, which speaks to maybe uh, pop music that'll come out of those kids growing up in those types of towns. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I hope it. I hope it will, and I hope to encourage. Uh, more of that wherever I end up teaching. Hmm. And here is Living for the City, Stevie Wonder. Strong, moving in the right direction. 
So, do you have any lyrics? Another thing with with Stevie is you can mm. actually understand the words. Mm. Like they don't go by so quick. <laughs> <laughs> I think I just I think so many pop tunes I can't like certain ACDC tunes or, mm. or other stuff that I love listening to. Like it grabs my ear because it's a good groove of certain uh, Van Halen tunes. Mm. Um, a kind of certain sound. Uh, same with the uh, Aerosmith. Aerosmith, I can understand most of the mm. words, but it's like. At least in this one, I could understand what the hell he's saying. You know, it's like it's it's really well enunciated. Again, that push pull of the groove. Uh, I was kind of between for my Stevie Wonder pick on on this list. Living for the City and Mister Know It All, mm. and they both have these like um, Living for the City has a little more drive to it, and Mister Know It All just has this um, super laid back drumming with super. Um, on top of the time piano playing that also creates just this wide pocket for Stevie uh, that that's that's pretty cool that that's I mean just the groove I, I don't even care what he's singing about and then it's just phenomenal music and it keeps going around and around and around uh, easy to pick up easy to harmonize easy to to hang with uh, so, I mean, Stevie just grooves and grooves so many different ways mm. that uh, I mean guys are real artist so as we end the show, uh, do you want to say anything to our listeners as we close up shop here? Thank both of you for listening. No, oh, sorry. <laughs> uh, thank all of you for listening. <laughs> Not, uh, this is so cool that you started this podcast, Sean, and um, you've always been such a, a – had broad musical interests, and I really look forward to seeing how you combine those interests as you uh, – Keep going with your career and teaching. Um, so many entry points for good musicianship with what I even saw when you were an undergrad, when I worked with you and through now. And uh, so glad we've been able to stay in touch through this and really look forward uh, to see where you end up next. And I hope I get to see you at the end of the tunnel after all this is over. Yes. Not just on Zoom cam. <laughs> okay, Mike. We thank didn't you. get Zoom bombed. Oh. That's good. I'm I'm happy about that too. I was worried that my sister was gonna pop in and zoom bomb me, but oh, totally. Hello, hello, close. That, that's all right. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you again for having me on. My pleasure. Thanks, Mike. Thank you, Mike. And you've been listening to Music Speaks, a podcast for lovers of music everywhere. Also, this week, I will have the chance to interview Angela King and Marissa Plotty graduate assistants at the Ithaca College School of Music, and they're both roommates. And that's it for me. I'm Sean Rimkunis, and keep listening to what you love. <laughs>